I V M. I have to make a brief announcement. Today, at fifteen forty-five hours, India conducted three underground nuclear tests in the Pokhran Range. These tests conducted today. There with a fission device, a low yield device, and a thermonuclear device. Hi, you're listening to States of Anarchy, a podcast on global affairs and foreign policy. I'm your host, Hamsini Hariharan. What you just heard was the former Prime Minister of India, Atal Bihari Vajpayee, announcing the successful nuclear tests conducted in May 1998. With this, India became a state with nuclear weapons, completely changing power equations not only in South Asia but across the world. In August 1999, 20 years ago, the National Security Advisory Board prepared a draft report on the Indian nuclear doctrine. While the government did not endorse it then, this report became the basis for the official doctrine, whose summarized version was publicly released in 2003. In it, the government laid down the objectives for acquiring nuclear weapons, as well as the conditions for which it would use them. Over the last two decades, India has slowly gained acceptance as a de facto nuclear power on the world stage. Recently, there has been a lot of debate about whether or not India is changing its nuclear policy. You see, in 2014, the BJP's election manifesto promised to revise and update India's nuclear doctrine to make it relevant to challenges of the current time. In 2016, India's then Defence Minister, the late Manohar Parrikar, at a book launch, said that there should be a degree of unpredictability on the issue of nuclear weapons. Though he did stress that it was his personal opinion, there have also been reports that Pakistan has been able to make tactical nuclear weapons that could be used on a battlefield. So, what would that mean for India's posture? And what about changes in the international nuclear regime? How should we even be thinking about India's nuclear policy? My guest for today is Dr. Manpreet Sethi. Dr. Sethi is a distinguished fellow at the Center for Air Power Studies in New Delhi. Over the last 18 years, she has been researching and writing on subjects related to nuclear energy, strategy, non-proliferation, disarmament, arms and export controls and BMTs. She has written books, she has edited various books and papers on a whole range of nuclear issues. She is also a recipient of the prestigious K Subramaniam Award, a national honor conferred for excellence in strategic and security studies. I'm talking to Dr. Sethi today about India's nuclear doctrine, its history and its evolution. But before we delve into the conversation, let's take a short break. Hello and welcome to another awesome week at the IVM Podcast Network. If you're not following us on social media, please do. We are at IVM Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Don't forget to take a screenshot of whatever podcast of ours that you're listening to. Take a screenshot and put in a comment about what you think about the show and we will reshare it from our social media pages. Here's what's in store for you this week. On the scene and the unseen Amit Verma is in conversation with historian Srinath Raghavan. They talk about the complicated history of Jammu and Kashmir, the recent abrogation of Article 370 and what the future might hold. On Paisa Vesa Anupam Gupta is joined by Vishal Sabarwal, EVP e-commerce and digital marketing at HDFC Life. They discuss life insurance and its importance, different investment options offered by HDFC Life and more. 
On Keeping It Queer, Naveen and Farhad talk to drag queen Sushant Devgikar about his journey of representing one's community and why is it important. On our Kannada podcast, Thalya Harte, Varun Ramachandra talks to Pawan Srinath about his life in political sciences and political philosophies. On Football Shootball, Gaurav, Karthik and Sivaram discuss the Manchester City versus Tottenham match. They touch upon the Neymar saga and Roberto Pereira dancing to Bazigar O Bazigar. On the Geek Fruit podcast, Jishnu and Dinkar break down and give their take on the brand new TV series, The Boys. On Golgappa, host Trupti Khamkar is joined by Daniel Mendonca, a gender rights activist who talks about being sex positive and inclusiveness. He also shares his experience of representing India at the UN. On Water Player, Mikhail Akash and Siddharth talk about Chris Gayle breaking Lara's record, Kedar Jadav's comparison with Vix, Rafael Nadal and his sneakers, Arsenal fans and a lot more. On Simplified, Chuck and Srikhe talk to crossword setter for the Hindu Tony Sebastian about crossword puzzles and what goes into setting them. And with that, let's get you back onto your show. Welcome back to States of Anarchy. I'm Hamsini Hariharan and I'm talking to Dr. Manpreet Sethi about India's nuclear doctrine. Hi, Dr. Sethi. Welcome to States of Anarchy. Uh, hello, Hamsini. It's a pleasure to be here. So, in 1998, India conducted... the pokhran 2 tests it uh, tested a nuclear fusion bomb and four nuclear fission bombs and of course there's all the politics behind that that we won't be going into today but what it essentially did was meant that here was a new nuclear capable nation um so what was india's nuclear policy i think they formulated something in 1999 that's right uh, india as you said tested uh, in may 1998 and in just a year and a few months in august 1999 india had put out a nuclear doctrine uh, which was rather uncharacteristic because one india had been so quiet about nuclear issues in the country and uh, two never had we put it out as a public debate document mm. so the first national security advisory board made this document mm. and uh, presented it to the national security advisor uh, who was then mr brijesh mishra and he put it out for public debate there were very many things that were made clear as part of this doctrine one for instance was that the role of the nuclear weapon for india mm. would be for deterrence mm. india was looking at it as a way of safeguarding itself against nuclear coercion or blackmail it was not a war fighting weapon it was seen as a political instrument of deterrence and deterrence was to be exercised through the idea of punishment mm. there are two ways in which countries can have nuclear deterrence one is by an idea of denial where you do war fighting with nuclear weapons you show that you can fight a war mm. and you will deny the military objective to the adversary okay the other way of doing it is through punishment mm. by letting him know that if there was something a use of nuclear weapons there would be uh, unacceptable damage that would be carried out on the adversary so that's a way of deterring by punishment and these two basic thoughts were very clearly laid out by india's nuclear doctrine um and therefore the attributes of the doctrine uh, four of them which became you know which which have been the hallmark of india's nuclear policy one is credible minimum deterrence okay the other is no first use mm-hmm. the third is assured punitive retaliation okay. which is deterrence by punishment and the fourth is pursuit of universal nuclear disarmament so this was another very strange thing that india did because here you were uh operationalizing a nuclear doctrine you were operationalizing your capability which you had demonstrated in the test and you were doing that 
also by suggesting that India was interested still in nuclear disarmament. Uh, I want to get into the four uh, attributes that you're speaking about, but this makes me think of a couple of things that happened during the 1980s. One was, I think India was uh, one of the countries to say nuclear weapons are weapons of peace, not war. And I think that comes from what you're saying. And uh, the second was when India uh, conducted its nuclear tests, it was heavily criticized for this dual approach where they were pushing for disarmament very strongly across the world stage. Um, so do you see it as a dichotomy? Or do you see it as a policy that goes in hand? I think what was going on in the world in the 1990s when India tested its nuclear weapons was not so much emphasis on disarmament as on non-proliferation. Mm. The idea of the big powers who were members of the non-proliferation treaty was to not let other countries become nuclear weapon states of any kind. Uh, and the focus, therefore, for instance, in 1995, when the NPT was given a full and unconditional extension uh, for all times to come, uh, the non-nuclear weapon states uh, as members of the NPT lost the leverage mm. of ever getting the nuclear weapon states to agree to disarmament. So, so countries for India, like South Africa and Argentina gave up any nuclear Absolutely. Argentina, had. in fact, uh, joined the mm. NPT at that moment in time as a non-nuclear weapon state, uh, despite having had some ambitions in the past about having nuclear weapons, similarly for South Africa. Uh, but for India, which was trying to address its national security through international means like the NPT, mm -hmm. hoping that nuclear disarmament will come about to address its challenge of China's nuclear weapons, found that that was not going to happen. Mm -hmm. The other major non-proliferation event that happened was uh, the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, okay. which was passed in 1996, mm -hmm. giving countries three years mm -hmm. uh, to decide uh, to join the CTBT. Okay. In fact, the CTBT put out a list of 44 countries mm. and all of these 44 countries were asked to join the CTBT in three years. If they did not join, they would be subject to sanctions or even military action under the UN Security Council uh, Charter. But how so, could a treaty be sort of legally binding if you're not even signing it? Exactly. So that was the reason why CTBT became such a sore point for India. Mm. Because even though India had been part of negotiations of the CTBT, the manner in which it was put out, giving in this annex 44 countries mm. by name, it was an unprecedented move. Treaties, as you say, are voluntary uh, sort of, uh, you know, mechanisms that countries want to join. Yeah. Uh, so for India, that became another very stifling issue. Mm -hmm. Because if you were not going to test in these three years, then there was no chance that India would get to test. And as you've seen, the purpose of this was non-proliferation, mm -hmm. not disarmament. And therefore, the moment India and Pakistan tested, the US, uh, you know, immediately collapsed on the CTBT. And that mm -hmm. treaty has been in coma since then. All right. So when you think about very briefly, just I don't want to get into this too much. But there are a lot of people who don't understand the difference between sort of non-proliferation and disarmament and sort of see the debates as one and the same. So could you briefly tell me how non-proliferation and disarmament differ? Yeah, so non-proliferation is the idea that more countries must not have nuclear weapons, that you're trying to stop the proliferation of nuclear weapons capability. So the idea of the non-proliferation treaty was to create these two sets of states. Mm -hmm. There are five nuclear weapon states who are seen as the legitimate nuclear weapon states and all the others are supposed to join the treaty as mm -hmm. non-nuclear weapon states. And the legitimacy of nuclear weapons for these mm -hmm. five countries comes from a definition to say that any country who which has tested a nuclear weapon mm -hmm. before the 1st of January 1967 is a nuclear weapon state. Mm -hmm. 
So which is why all of those five, the last one being China, China. that tested in 1964. Uh, disarmament is the idea that you want to move to the universal elimination of nuclear weapons. Mm. Uh, so it's looking at a nuclear weapons free world. In the Indian um, thinking on mm. these issues, non-proliferation was seen as a step towards disarmament. Okay. But when the NPT was given this unconditional extension, uh, there was no hope for disarmament mm. coming as a result of non-proliferation. But actually, when you see, mm. um, there can be no disarmament if there is no non-proliferation. The two have a symbiotic relationship. So for non-proliferation to be sustainable, mm. for every country to commit to remaining non-nuclear, disarmament will have to be the long-term objective. In sort of looking at non-proliferation as a means to an end, which is disarmament. Correct. All right. So back to uh, our nuclear doctrine. So there were four main attributes. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. So the first attribute I had mentioned was credible minimum deterrence, mm -hmm. which was the concept that you don't need large numbers in order to have deterrence. Mm -hmm. You can have minimum numbers, uh, stockpile accumulation of the kind that had happened during the Cold War period between mm -hmm. the superpowers is just not necessary. The nature of the weapon is such that you need less numbers to be able to deter the other side. Uh, so minimum is one attribute and the other is credible, which is to look believable to the adversary. Mm. So you need a certain amount of capability, uh, ranges of missiles, you need some accuracy of your delivery systems. All of that then goes to making credible minimum deterrence. So the distinction that India's nuclear doctrine was making uh, from that of the superpowers of the Cold War was we don't go into a maximalist stockpile. Mm. You know, during the Cold War period, the superpowers had built as much as 65,000 nuclear weapons. Mm. India said low numbers will be enough to have credible deterrence. The other thing India said was no first use. Mm. And the only two countries, there are nine nuclear weapon states today, nuclear mm. armed states in today's times. Eight of them are declared. Israel mm. hasn't either agreed or, uh, you know, disagreed to the idea of having nuclear weapons. But out of these eight nuclear armed states, China and India are the only countries which have a declared no first use doctrine. Mm. All the others say we will use nuclear weapons first, even against conventional attacks. Mm. So China and India uh, have, have maintained that our nuclear weapons are only meant for nuclear deterrence. It's to stop the other side from using its nuclear weapons, mm. not against conventional capability, which is a marked difference from Pakistan, which believes in first use of nuclear weapons because it's trying to deter the conventional capability mm. of India. So Pakistan's made statements to the effect of, you know, any strangulation of our economy or of our waters will be considered as an attack upon the country. Uh, but India's position is very different, as you've mentioned. Yeah, uh, India's position is nuclear weapons against nuclear weapons. Whereas in the case of Pakistan, they believe that there are very many scenarios in which they might be, uh, they, it might be necessary for them to use nuclear weapons. How much of that is just projection? Of course. And how much of it is, uh, you know, in, in actuality, can mm -hmm. they bring it into play? Uh, that remains a big question. Uh, I agree with you. Signaling is always a very important deterrence. Absolutely. Communication, signaling is the uh, cent the central dimension of mm -hmm. nuclear deterrence. It's all about uh, exercising control over mind play of the other side. Mm -hmm. So it's manipulation of perceptions. It's uh, It's a mind game. Yes, of course. So when all these leaders make these really big statements, it's very easy to get... Uh, carried away by the weight of their words. But I think it's also very easy to forget that this is a part of just a narrative that they have to put out as a means for deterrence. I quite agree with that. 
so what about things like biological attacks what about things like chemical attacks does this mean that if tomorrow there is a biological attack on india india will not respond with the use of nuclear force so there is a dimension here that needs to be understood when india put out its draft nuclear doctrine which mm-hmm. i was talking about earlier in 1999 there was no mention of chemical and biological okay but in 2003 uh the draft remained a draft doctrine to okay. this day it's a draft doctrine all right but in 2003 india put out another statement which is called the press note on operationalization of the nuclear doctrine okay this made two differences mm-hmm. uh from what the draft doctrine had said okay the press note accepted all the attributes that i've spoken about mm-hmm. but uh, it brought in two new dimensions one of which was about uh, nuclear deterrence against chemical and biological Now why did this happen perhaps because the US at that time I mean if you remember 2003 came after 2001 when the 911 attacks had taken place yes and the idea that chemical and biological attacks could be done by non-state actors or by state support to non-state actors mm-hmm. was a threat that was very much in the air mm-hmm. so the US started saying that nuclear weapons will be used against chemical and biological and my sense is that I think we followed the same mm-hmm. but actually when you look at it uh, would it be possible because if it's a non-state actor which is most likely to use chemical or biological mm-hmm. how would you use your nuclear weapons against a non-state actor that doesn't have territory that doesn't have a stake somewhere that you can you know deter him mm-hmm. uh, through the threat of use of nuclear weapons if it's a state that's going to use nuclear weapons then for india the threat perceptions are either from pakistan or from china yes both these countries are members of uh, international mechanisms that control the use of chemical and biological weapons so it's unlikely that state use would happen mm. which is how classical deterrence works from one state to another so it's very difficult to deter a non-state actor which is likely to use chemical or biological but in the wisdom of that moment i think india put that into its doctrine and since we don't change our doctrines very often mm. we don't make these statements very often at the official level it continues to be a part of our nuclear doctrine for the time being fair enough um, so what are the other attributes that were in the 1999 doctrine in the 1999 the basic difference also that i want to point out in 1999 we spoke about punitive assured retaliation mm. which was to suggest that if there was nuclear use there would be assured there's a certainty of retaliation which will happen to cause unacceptable damage in the 2003 document mm. this language got changed to massive retaliation okay uh, and uh, while to a layman it makes no difference mm. because there is a baggage of nuclear lexicon that we have from the cold war period massive retaliation began to be seen by several people as not being a credible mm. doctrine will india given its nature of not uh, being in favor of using force uh, would it do something like massive retaliation so the word massive which comes from the english language to mean huge mm-hmm. uh, you know gigantic would that actually come into play uh, but over a period of time i think my understanding is massive retaliation makes for a good strategy of deterrence mm-hmm. particularly because pakistan started talking about what it calls tactical nuclear weapons mm-hmm. which is a way of describing a low yield nuclear weapon mm. to be used against a military target in the battlefield mm. so the assumption in pakistan is that if we were to use this low yield weapon mm. uh india will not be able to do massive retaliation mm. but my counter to that is 
India doesn't make a distinction between the types of nuclear weapons. We don't say something is tactical and something is strategic. Mm. So a nuclear weapon is a nuclear weapon. Irrespective of its yield or the target, there will be a retaliation to cause unacceptable damage to the other side. And because of the nature of the weapon, it doesn't call for very large numbers to carry out massive retaliation. Mm. Given the density of populations in our region, any use of even a weapon like Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which was no more than 15 to 20 kilotons, mm. would be massive retaliation. So as a deterrent strategy, massive retaliation, I think, makes good sense. All right. So what was, what was the context in which the doctrine was changed in 2003? Was there... I mean, you said that there were these two major changes, but uh, what was the context in which it was formulated? Uh, I'm sure the government is looking at our doctrinal attributes at all points in time. Hmm. But since the draft doctrine had not been formulated, it had not been put out in a formal form hmm. from 99 onwards. And in 2001, we had the uh, attack on the Indian parliament. Hmm. Uh, which led us into Op Parakram, Operation mm. Parakram. Yeah. Uh, the standoff continued for quite a long period of time. It finished only by towards the end of 2002. Mm. And in 2003 then, uh, the National Security Advisory Board, which had been reconstituted, uh, that decided to come out with this press note because mm. the need was felt to somehow convey a greater sense of uh, formalism of your nuclear doctrine. Mm. And in, in that context, I think it was in that political environment, uh, after Opparakram, after Opparakram not leading to any very substantive gains mm. in terms of changing Pakistani behavior on terrorism, uh, the need then was felt to bring out a more formal document in the form of uh, the 2003 statement. This is very interesting because it's uh, been nearly 16 years since then. And there is still a lot of low-intensity conflict that happens. Uh, on the Indian side, you can see a lot of terrorist attacks that happen all over the country. So how do you think India's nuclear posture and its strategies of deterrence work, particularly with regards to low-intensity conflict? It's a very difficult connection to make, actually. See, low-intensity conflict is a very low-cost strategy for Pakistan. Hmm. It's very easy for them to find people, to indoctrinate them, uh, they are given training of as little as two weeks to four weeks, depending mm. on the complexity of the operation that they are asked to carry out. So it's the easy availability of uh, people who can mm. be indoctrinated and uh, made to carry out acts of terrorism, which makes this strategy a very low-cost strategy for Pakistan. And if they believe that they must continue to bleed India, if that's what, you know, in the power structure in Pakistan, if the military has to keep a high profile, keep mm. its status that it has become accustomed to, then they must be able to create a threat. Mm. And in India, they find this alibi of being able to create a threat for mm. themselves yeah. to keep themselves in power. I think we all pretty much understand by now uh, what this mechanics is. So uh, for, for India to be able to change Pakistan's behavior on terrorism is not going to be because of our nuclear weapons mm. or our nuclear stature. It'll mean having to deal with it at various levels. Mm. And I think India has been doing a good job. Traditionally, we've been more defensive. Mm. So it was better border fencing, better intelligence, interception of infiltrators, trying them through a process of law. Mm. All of that has continued for several decades. Diplomatic isolation of Pakistan, trying to explain to the world as to how terrorism is actually being bred in this land and it's spreading. 
fortunately for us so many uh, attacks across the world have traced themselves to pakistan mm-hmm. that the world today understands that this is what is going on from this country economic strangulation i won't say strangulation economic uh, isolation again of pakistan in order to not let it reap the benefits of economic growth and development in order to make it understand that it's not really a low cost strategy mm-hmm. that the country itself is bleeding uh, for doing these acts across the border uh, and the last uh, dimension of this is a military offensive mm-hmm. now for a long period of time india believed that it wanted to stick to its economic growth and trajectory and it didn't want to digress mm. through any military conflict yeah but we see that dimension changing over mm. the last 4 or 5 years when the government has not shied away from imposing military costs mm. on pakistan but uh, each one of these steps will have to be a long drawn process all of them will need to come together to put pakistan in that bind to make them understand that it's really not a low cost strategy mm. and that they need to give up terrorism I think what India wants is a country which is at peace with itself mm. which is happy with what it has and is looking at economic growth and development because the potential of these two countries to engage with each other is immense we are losing all of that because of this rather strained relationship that we have so to say that your nuclear weapons will be able to change Pakistan's behavior I don't think that linkage comes through at all I I think it's important to point that out because uh it's a very easy correlation to make but it's not one that adds up at all particularly when you go into uh, the dynamics of how this plays out and i think we'll all agree that to have both countries progress economically to have societies that provide for their people is something that will work in all of our favors at this point let's take a break namaste main hu saurabh chandra aur main pranay kotistane जब महफिल खत्म होते होते दरवाजे के बाहर पुलिया के ऊपर हम दुनिया भर की जटिल समस्याओं को सॉल्व करने में लग जाते हैं तो हो जाती है पुलियाबाजी अब आजकल के अपार्टमेंट वालों ने तो कभी पुलिया देखी नहीं होगी पर आप फीलिंग तो समझ ही सकते हैं तो आइए शामिल हो जाइए हमारी पुलियाबाजी में जहाँ प्रणय और मैं एक ऐसी एक इंटरेस्टिंग टॉपिक की तह तक जाएंगे आर्टिफिशियल इंटेलिजेंस बिटकॉइन पाकिस्तान मेडिकल एजुकेशन करेंसी क्राइसिस कभी हम दोनों के साथ और अक्सर स्पेशल एक्सपर्ट गेस्ट की कंपनी में सुनिए हमें आई की वेबसाइट ऐप या अपने फेवरेट पॉडकास्टिंग प्लेटफॉर्म आरोप हर दूसरे हफ्ते Welcome back after the break. You're listening to States of Anarchy and I'm Hamsini Hariharan. Now moving on slightly back to the nuclear world. Since 1999 a lot of things have changed. I think we can agree that the pace of technology has moved massively. How do you think the world nuclear order has changed? How do you think the nature of nuclear weapons has changed since then? The global nuclear order has changed immensely uh, over the last two decades. uh i wouldn't say the nuclear weapons have changed the mm-hmm. basic technology remains the same the nature of the weapon remains the same but the salience that we today attach to nuclear weapons is very different from what it was even a decade ago uh you would remember that in 2010 president obama had started speaking about the possibility of a nuclear weapons free world for which he was awarded the nobel prize nobel prize, prize unfortunately uh, that idea never went anywhere um this was in 2010 this was the time when countries were looking at nuclear terrorism as the biggest threat mm. rather than looking at each other as nuclear adversaries from then to now the world situation has changed dramatically uh, we so are- is this the idea that uh, terrorists could get hold of facilities that host nuclear weapons or could make um, 
sort of low level nuclear bombs or is nuclear terrorism something that's different no nuclear terrorism is all of what you've said it okay. was a uh, sabotage of nuclear facilities it could be uh, using conventional explosives with radiological material which is more easily available mm-hmm. because it's in universities uh, hospitals industrial sites so you uh, terrorists could get hold of that material uh, mix it with conventional explosives to make what we call a dirty bomb mm-hmm. a radiological dispersal device uh it's about getting hold of a nuclear weapon hmm. all of these weigh differently in terms of access to that material so access to a nuclear weapon from a terrorist organization is extremely difficult these are big uh you know things uh, they are accounted for so it's hmm. not easy to get but nuclear material hmm. and particularly radiological material is far hmm. easier to get so nuclear terrorism is all of that okay. and president obama in his nuclear posture review in 2010 had identified nuclear terrorism as the biggest threat to the world okay. so he put a lot of focus on nuclear security hmm. but he said russia or china and their nuclear capabilities are really not threats okay. uh, to the us all right so look at the situation from 2010 to today hmm. where the nuclear posture review of president trump hmm. has identified russia and china as the biggest nuclear threats that the us has okay so the global order has changed in the context of the nuclear dyadic relations the mm. you know the, when there are two nuclear adversaries we are in a situation where most of them have an adversarial context mm. so whether it's us russia mm. whether it's us china whether it's us north korea mm. whether it's china india india pakistan each one of the dyad uh, is looking at the other as an adversary and not only is it a dyadic relationship there are mm. nuclear chains which are existing So right. what the US does has mm. an impact on Russia mm. on China which has an impact on India and which has an impact on Pakistan mm. so we seem to be globally connected in terms of how each country is behaving for its modernization mm. and we are in a situation where every one of the nuclear armed states is looking at better capabilities is looking at modernizing its mm. arsenal in us and russia say their arsenals are very old so mm. they need to upgrade them mm. china is building some new kinds of capabilities for the first time so are india and pakistan mm. so each one is looking at bettering their nuclear capabilities in order to have better deterrence so you would say that vertical proliferation still continues vertical proliferation is the biggest problem which is going on today including uh, coming in of new technologies mm. and these new technologies for instance cyber mm. or hypersonic missiles mm. are intersecting with nuclear deterrence in ways that we've not seen in the past mm. all this is happening at a time when arms control mm. is just out of the window you would know about a treaty which has just fallen out uh, the arms control the INF treaty uh-huh. the intermediate nuclear forces treaty mm. which the US has given up mm. and Russia too has suspended its uh, membership of the treaty mm. it was a bilateral treaty between the two mm. but all of the bilateral arms control architecture that was created so painstakingly during the cold war period is completely out of fashion uh, in today's mm. times The US is hoping that Russia and China will mm. all come together to make a new kind of an arms control architecture but China has said that they have no interest in arms mm. control. So what I'm trying to point out is that we are in a global situation mm. where every country is willing to make the worst case assumption of the other mm. and build its own capability based on that assumption. There are no kinds of controls which are in place at the global level or in bilateral contexts which is trying to bring down these threat perceptions 
by controlling any kinds of arms new arms are coming into play new technologies are coming into play and as a result of all this the salience of nuclear weapons in today's times is much higher than it what it was maybe even two decades ago that's interesting because you would think with the end of the cold war one sort of narrative that the cold war was a period of instability because you had these two great powers but now considering the multipolar world considering you have so many nuclear actors each uh, wanting different uh, things for their own national interests the stage is still just as dynamic as it was during the cold war oh yes much so much more so actually uh, than now in fact you now look back at the cold war period with great nostalgia to say that was a period of predictability you knew exactly how states would behave because mm. of their ideological you know belief systems uh, in today's times things are just so different uh in fact another difference that has come out is this whole behavior of nuclear brinksmanship mm. you know during the cold war period people had come to understand that there are certain behaviors which are responsible behavior mm. as a nuclear weapon state and if you are behaving like that you are being uh, you are stabilizing a situation mm. but we are in today's times where president trump and chairman kim jong un mm. there is no difference in their behavior mm. so us was not expected to behave in which it has in terms of you know mentioning in such a cavalier attitude about uh, whose button is bigger who which which <laughs> nuclear weapon can come into play mm. this was not the casualness with which we are speaking about nuclear issues uh, was never what it was in the past and uh, since then i think horizontal proliferation has also been an issue right i mean in the 2004 you had sort of this unveiling of the aq khan proliferation network and the idea that other countries non nuclear weapon states were still getting their hands on intelligence behind nuclear weapon designs and such uh, what do you think of horizontal proliferation since then i think the non proliferation treaty has managed to keep the lid on more countries going nuclear yes the aq khan network was a big problem mm-hmm. uh, but most of the countries to which that proliferation was happening have been handled except mm-hmm. for north korea uh, north korea with north korea i think we have to realize that uh, denuclearization is never going to happen mm. a country which has acquired nuclear weapons and it understands that it's gaining its stature mm. because of that nuclear weapon is not going to give up that capability more countries which could possibly go nuclear which have been spoken about are south korea and japan mm. as a result of the threat from north korea now i mentioned the casualness with which you know nuclear weapons have been spoken about and president trump has in the past mentioned that he won't mind if south korea and japan were to develop their own nuclear weapons in any case he's been asking them to bear the burden of mm. their own security by increasing you know new weapons to be brought in from the us or increasing their defense expenditures so you can find that some of these instances would result in horizontal proliferation but both of these are committed countries as non nuclear weapon states as part of the npt mm. so for any country in fact the npt today has a membership of something like 198 countries mm. uh, for any of the non nuclear weapon states to step out of the npt and develop nuclear weapons i think there is a norm against that mm. which is in place there's a law but you can accept it or not but mm. the mental um, you know ability to step out of that mm. so called lakshman rekha mm. is not going to be so easy so horizontal proliferation i think for the time being is not as much a problem as it was in the past i just want to touch on two things one is iran 
because uh, when you're talking about horizontal proliferation, I don't think you can forget uh, that Iran managed to achieve the JCPOA, the Joint Contra- Comprehensive Plan of Action, uh, which has then now fallen through, uh, and it's and they're still sort of jostling for things to happen. So, what is your opinion on what is happening with Iran? You're very right. You can't talk about horizontal proliferation without talking about Iran. Uh, the JCPOA was essentially, I think, crafted to buy time in order to mainstream Iran. Mm. The whole idea was that you would have Iran as partner mm. uh, to what was happening on the economy, on the international relations and in Middle East, all of that. And the idea was that Iran would then not have the ambition to mm. go for nuclear weapons. The surprising thing is the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, has never said that Iran is in violation of any of its commitments under the NPT. Mm. Uh, but the US continues to maintain, mm. under President Trump particularly, that uh, the JCPOA is out of the window mm. and that Iran remains a problem state as far as nuclear issues is concerned. Uh, I think we are pushing Iran into a corner. And if it ever had any nuclear ambitions, and if it has built the kind of capability that people tend to assume it has, then you could see Iran testing a nuclear weapon. Mm. Uh, and it has seen the manner in which North Korea gets treatment because of the presence of nuclear weapons. So I think this is something that countries are watching to say, and that's why I said the salience of nuclear weapons mm. is really at a high at this moment, where people believe that if you have nuclear weapons, you also acquire stature. Mm. You know, this was an allegation that has also been made against India, that mm. India conducted its nuclear tests for stature and for prestige. I think it's a collateral benefit that comes to you because of the value that we've started attaching to nuclear weapons. But when India tested its nuclear weapons, it was out of a security compulsion. Mm. And it's for security that India continues to have the nuclear weapon. It's because the rest of the world attaches stature mm. to nuclear weapons that you become a collateral beneficiary mm. of that. Yes. Uh, and I think this also drives back to the point that, you know, you could, of course, the NPT has loopholes and you can criticize it until the cows come home. But it still is the cornerstone for the nuclear regime today. Um, would you agree with that? Yes, I would agree with that. Even though India has not been a member of the NPT, the NPT is not a popular treaty with India. Uh, nevertheless, I think we all agree that it has served a purpose. Mm. It has managed to keep a control over more countries going nuclear. Mm. The NPT will come in for a review conference in 2020. Okay. And that will be a space to watch out for because the frustration of the non-nuclear weapon states uh, with the not getting the nuclear weapon states to agree to anything on disarmament mm. while the non-nuclear weapon states are are having to agree to more and more non-proliferation commitments is beginning to rankle now. Mm. Uh you would remember that uh, just a year ago, the non-nuclear weapon states had come out with what they call the ban treaty. Mm. It's the nuclear weapons prohibition treaty. Okay. The idea of this treaty was that nuclear weapons are banned. Mm. Now, the problem with this is all the non-nuclear weapon states are members of the treaty, but none of the nuclear weapon states has shown any inclination to ever join the treaty. So the ban treaty has ended up creating more fissures mm. between the nuclear weapon states and the non-nuclear weapon states. So when they meet for the review conference in 2020, it'll be extremely interesting to see the dynamics between the nuclear weapon states and the non-nuclear weapon states and how they reconcile uh, some of the problem areas mm. that we are facing. No, I think it's interesting, particularly when you have um, 
commitments like Obama made and uh, to see that uh, US and Russia aren't inclined to even reduce their stockpiles. In fact, they want to modernize warheads and so on uh, would, of course, rankle with countries considering that uh, uh, things like the NPT were signed in good faith. Uh, and maybe that isn't something that's getting reflected uh, 60, 70 years after its signing. Correct. 50 years, 50 uh, years. down the line. They'll be celebrating 50 years this time. Ah. So... Uh, it doesn't seem as if the pact which was created between the nuclear and non-nuclear weapon states is playing out the way it had been thought about, which is the reason why India had then stayed out because mm. it felt that this division between nuclear and non-nuclear weapon states with different sets of responsibilities and privileges mm. is not going to be a sustainable uh, mechanism. So while the treaty has worked in terms of keeping the numbers of nuclear armed states under check, mm. uh, its sustainability in the future uh, mm. And its ability to move towards disarmament is uh, not looking very bright right now. All right. So when we come back to India, there's also considering all of these things that have been happening, there are also debates about uh, India's nuclear doctrine and what it means uh, right now. So but I'm particularly concerned about two things that play out in the media now. Uh, one of which is the idea that India is now moving away from its no first use towards a preemptive strategy. Do you think that's what is happening? As far as I can see it, it's not happening. Mm. I haven't seen one statement being made by a serving official uh, which talks about moving from no first use to first use. Mm. We must understand India is a very voluble democracy. And everybody says based on, you know, what is their level of understanding of nuclear issues. As far as I'm concerned, there is no reason for India to change from no first use to first use. No first use gives us benefits mm. uh, and there's a deep military logic mm. because when you are in a situation where the other country has a secure second strike capability, which means that they can have retaliation irrespective of how big a strike you're making, then it makes no sense to strike first. Mm. In case of a nuclear monopoly, you can strike first and you can come out looking better mm. after that. But the whole idea of using nuclear weapon, if it ever comes to that, has to be that after using the weapon, you should be in a better position. Mm. But where the other side is still able to hit back at you with nuclear weapons, how have you become better mm. after having to take retaliation? So therefore, the logic of no first use is a confidence in your nuclear survivability mm. to to suggest to the other side, the onus of escalation is on you. Mm. You can decide when you want to use your nuclear weapons. So I'm actually making, uh, putting him off the edge mm. by suggesting to him that call is yours. I'm not threatening your nuclear capability. Mm. You can take that first call. But once you use nuclear weapons, there will be a massive retaliation. Mm. There will be unacceptable damage. So the objective for which you used your nuclear weapon will not be met. So that's the idea of deterrence that mm. India is putting out through no first use. When you say that you should change to first use, mm. it's not just about dropping the word no. Mm. Any nuclear doctrine must look credible to the adversary. Mm. So when you say first use, then you must have a credible arsenal to look credible to the other side, mm. which means having large numbers, which means having counter force capabilities. Mm which means having high intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance capability mm. in order to identify which are the sites, mm. which means having good accuracy of your own missiles to be able to hit at military targets, mm. 
what india is saying is i will do counter value targeting okay. unacceptable damage means hitting out at cities mm. to cause unacceptable damage mm. uh for which you don't need very highly accurate missiles mm. you know you can hit one part of delhi or another part of delhi it doesn't really matter mm. so the whole idea of first use is premised on very high requirements of arsenal mm. india has freed its hands from all of that we are a resource poor country uh, there are lots of developmental issues on which we need to keep our focus on given the nature of the nuclear weapon i don't think we need to expend our energy and our resources on building counter force capabilities okay so having a no first use doctrine serves your purpose of deterrence beautifully and my my fear is that we should not be pulled into the direction of first use all right so just coming back to a little about counter force and counter value because there are again a lot of people who go out and say uh you know we can do things like surgical strikes on military installations now which is i personally think is hyperbole but that would again drive down to the distinction that india makes between counter force and counter value and the conventional level also when you see all of the wars that india has fought uh, with pakistan never has india done uh, too much of civilian targeting mm. and this is at the conventional level all mm. our wars have largely been limited wars mm. in terms of time in terms of the kinds of uh, you know things that we've struck out in the nuclear world i mean there are some differences between conventional and nuclear targeting mm. in conventional what you're trying to suggest to the other side particularly in today's times is that we can hit at the military in order to send a message of resolve mm. about your capability mm. um you've seen what happened at balakot yes. which india described as a preemptive non military strike mm. because you especially chose targets mm. which were not hitting out the military in any way and looking at the terrorist uh, infrastructure that you wanted to destroy so uh, and with the nuclear world um counter force targeting is an extremely difficult proposition mm. while you would want that the other side's ability to retaliate would be limited it's not going to be easy to do that mm. so given the kinds of problem areas that exist with that india has followed this path uh, this understanding that it's a weapon for deterrence based on punishment mm. and punishment is best when it's done against counter value targets mm. so india has two main threats in uh its neighborhood one is pakistan and the other is china as you'd mentioned and do you think these two countries have largely changed their strategies towards india as well or their nuclear strategies in general because when you're talking about things like deterrence when you're talking about counter force and counter value how credible is pakistan's first use for example and how should that affect us i would say pakistan's first use is not credible mm. i think it's uh, they understand very well that if that first use was to happen what would it mean for their own country mm. but it's the projection of that first use which is extremely important as part of their strategy mm. the whole idea of pakistan's nuclear strategy is india cannot use its conventional capability against me because i've got this nuclear shield while i can continue to do subconventional acts of terrorism against india mm. that's the you know the nuclear strategy in nutshell mm. about pakistan so certainly they've been developing certain capabilities to to compress the space for mm. india to do conventional action against them the whole idea of tactical nuclear weapons that we spoke about earlier that concept is coming from there mm. because when india suggested that i can fight a limited war 
or punish Pakistan for its acts of terrorism, then Pakistan said, no, you can't do that mm. because my threshold of using nuclear weapons is so low that I will use a tactical nuclear mm. weapon, perhaps even against your troops in my territory. Mm. So, you know, they were trying to bring that credibility to that act by saying, I don't mind losing my own territory, mm. hitting out at military targets. Uh, but the idea would be to escalate to the nuclear level mm. in order to get you to de-escalate your conventional capability because I can't withstand mm. um, the mismatch of conventional capabilities as such. So that's how they have changed mm. their concept of deterrence. As far as China is concerned, um, China doesn't look at India as a nuclear threat. Mm. Uh, they like to look at the US. That's the term of reference for them. And they are building up their capability, keeping the Americans in mind. Mm. So all of the new technologies that you hear about, the modernization that's happening in the Chinese nuclear capability is largely aimed as a deterrence for the US. But it does have downstream effects on India. And I think India is very much uh, monitoring those capabilities. But the fact that India and China both have doctrinal consonants mm. in terms of no first use brings a level of stability mm. to this relationship. So if you recall, when Doklam happened, yes. uh, neither of the two sides were saying nuclear. There That's was no true. mention of mm. the word nuclear. Whereas when there's a crisis situation between India and Pakistan, Pakistan is the first one to start reminding India that you can't touch me because I've got nuclear weapons. So this is the... The challenge that India has mm. that you're looking at two countries with different doctrines, mm. different capabilities, and you are having to maintain your own doctrine, which is based on a clarity of thought uh, to deter both sides. Fair enough. Now, considering all of these um, dynamics at play uh, and the asymmetry between India and Pakistan, as well as between India and China, what do you think should be changes to India's doctrine? Do you think there are things that we should do differently? As far as the doctrine is concerned, I think the guidelines which it is giving us uh, are quite okay. All right. So I don't have a problem with any of the four guidelines which have been given. Uh, in fact, if you look at credible minimum deterrence, there is an uh, there's an economic logic that mm. it's bringing. So your resources don't get wasted on building an arsenal which is just not needed mm. for deterrence. If you look at... Uh, no first use. There is a military logic to no first use, as mm -hmm. I explained uh, in an earlier answer. If you look at universal nuclear disarmament, I think there's a moral or an ethical dimension, a logic uh, which India has. So as part of its nuclear doctrine, I think India is doing just fine. All right. My worry is if people were to not remain loyal to the doctrine mm. and try to move towards counterforce, mm. uh, more of the capabilities that would unnecessarily bring you into a security dilemma uh, with the adversary because he begins to assume that you're interested in moving from no first use to mm. first use. No first use gives us a certain kind of a space and it gives you the freedom uh, mm. of doing your activities. So the stability which comes with the kind of attributes that we have in the doctrine, I think make perfect sense. It also removes the problem of arms racing because mm. you are working to your template mm. of what is deterrence. Mm. So as far as that is concerned, the doctrine is concerned, I don't think we need any changes. Where we might need changes are more in terms of communication of capability and resolve. Fortunately, the surgical strikes and Balakot have addressed that question to mm. some extent about okay. your ability to show resolve. Mm. Uh, but I think signaling or communication, mm. an occasional statement by the government on these issues, particularly to 
sometimes put doubts of india moving from one dimension to another mm. to rest that would uh, i think uh, be the maximum that i would advise the government to do all right that's fair enough or uh, this is my last question to you dr cd for anyone who's interested in reading more about nuclear issues whether it's about india's nuclear doctrine or nuclear histories what would you suggest for books or resources fortunately for us uh, quite a lot of writing by indians is now beginning to emerge on nuclear issues mm-hmm. uh, there was a long period of time when we were all dependent on you know western literature on these issues a lot mm-hmm. of our understanding of uh, terminologies has come mm-hmm. from the west but there are plenty of indians who are beginning to look at this far more carefully now so to recommend a few uh, for the history of uh, the development of nuclear weapons i think raj chengappa okay uh, he wrote a fantastic book called weapons for peace mm. um more recently uh, lieutenant general prakash menon has written a book on uh, conventional war and nuclear shadow mm. uh, which again explains india's dilemma and the manner in which it is resolving that dilemma Uh, there are several books by a commodore jasjeet singh mm. uh, writings of k subramaniam who both of them are treated as the nuclear strategist that india has uh, for a contrarian view there is bharat karnad mm. who has a couple of books on india's nuclear doctrine deterrence um so all of this gives you a wide range mm. of the kinds of uh, thought processes that go on in a democracy which is as vibrant as india mm. and i would recommend to everyone India's nuclear challenges are unique. Mm. We are trying to find our own way of you know addressing these challenges and since there is so much of grayness in this whole area mm. there is nothing that someone can say is right or wrong. Mm. It's important for all Indians to understand the dynamics of the nuclear challenges and develop that own understanding that this country needs to have uh, to address the many dimensions that we have. All right. Thank you so much Dr. Sethi. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you it was my pleasure. That's it for this episode of States of Anarchy. Thanks for staying with us. If you want to read more about India's nuclear doctrine, just scroll down to the episode description where I've attached a bunch of resources for you. If you have any comments or questions, then feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at the rate Hamsini H and on Instagram at the rate States of Anarchy. If you like what you listen to, then do subscribe to States of Anarchy. on the IVM podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts from we'll be back next tuesday filter coffee is a fascinating beverage you need to pick the right beans blend them in the right proportion roast them to perfection and slow brew at the right temperature to get the perfect cup which is exactly like great conversations as well You need to track down the most interesting minds, get them into their zone and settle down for an unhurried, unscripted chat. And coffee for me is always 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 best enjoyed with friends. I'm Karthik Nagarajan and do share my table as I meet some of the most interesting people I know and sit them down for a strong cup of coffee and an even stronger conversation. Join me every Wednesday for a freshly brewed episode. This is not frappe. This is The Filter Coffee Podcast. Do you wish you were smarter? 
Well, so do we. But the next best thing, we could make you sound smarter. And to help you with this endeavor, we are Simplified, Ooh. a podcast uh, that attempts to break down the complex world around you with a little knowledge, a lot of poor jokes, and a ton of random trivia. Episodes out every Monday on the IVM podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts. See ya. See ya.